thank you for joining us for another episode of God, Law, and Liberty with David Fowler, president of the Family Action Council of Tennessee. Every week, we are putting culture, politics, and law on a collision course with the truth of God's Word. And now, here's David. Well, welcome to this week's episode of God, Law, and Liberty. I'm starting a new series that will continue for a couple of weeks about the law and the Constitution. But uh, we just completed last week the series on the rule of law, and I want to pick up there just a little bit because the rule of law has been in the news lately. Specifically, this week, the abortion clinic in Mississippi filed its brief with the United States Supreme Court in the Dobbs versus West Jackson Women's Center case, arguing that the court should affirm the holdings in Roe and in Planned Parenthood versus Casey in particular, and hold unconstitutional the abortion law in Mississippi. And the rule of law got brought up in that case, and it was brought up this week in a statement made by the uh, Attorney General of the United States, Garland, in the filing of the lawsuit by the Department of Justice against the state of Texas in connection with its abortion law. And so I, I want to use both of those quotes and just comment on them because, you see, what, what we talk about on this show is relevant to the day-to-day of our lives and what's going on in those high places of authority that affect our lives. And we can read what they say, and we can be taken in by what they say, and we could say, oh, and, and not realize that they don't know what they're talking about, and they are misrepresenting the Constitution or the rule of law to us, and we need not quake in fear or retreat from what we're doing. So let me begin with what the abortion lawyers said in their brief about the Mississippi uh, abortion statute and the court's decision in Planned Parenthood versus Casey, 1992 Supreme Court decision, that held that until a fetus reached viability, meaning it could survive outside the womb with medical assistance, that the woman had a right to make an abortion decision without the state interfering with it. So here's what was written in that brief. If the court considers the states, referring of course to Mississippi's, new arguments, okay, so they're right off admitting that they are making perhaps some new arguments, arguments that the court has not considered. And we're going to be talking over the next few weeks about why that is so important, but the the long and short of it is they're conceding that, that Casey and Roe would not be precedent the doctrine of stare decisis that you hear so much about would not apply because these are new arguments. In other words, Roe and Casey are precedent for arguments that have already been made, but they're not precedent for arguments that have never been considered. But anyway, let's go on. If the court considers the state's new arguments, of course, they don't want the Supreme Court to consider any new arguments. It says it should reject the invitation to jettison a half century of settled precedent and to abandon a rule of law that this court has said 
uniquely implicates the country's, quote, competence in the judiciary. And the quote there about confidence in the judiciary actually comes from Casey. Now, what people don't appreciate is that Casey really reversed Roe versus Wade, the holding in Roe versus Wade, and said, oh, you know, what we're going to do is we're going to affirm the central holding of Roe versus Wade. Notice they didn't say we're going to uphold the Constitution. We're going to uphold a central holding. We're not even going to uphold the holding, but the central holding was uh, women could make abortion decisions. And so we're going to uphold that. Of course, upholding, uh, holding is not upholding the Constitution, but what they're saying here is when the Supreme Court holds that a verdict or a judgment should be in favor of one party and against another party, that somehow constitutes the rule of law. Now, the rule of law, of course, is founded in the fact that there are objective, we would say as Christians, creational realities regarding the nature of the universe and the nature of humans and human destiny, that without that creational foundation, there can be no rule of law. And of course, Roe and Casey are the repudiation of any objective cosmological, anthropological givens, because they repudiate that motherhood is grounded in being pregnant. Instead, motherhood exists once you decide to keep a baby. They're saying persons have no objective given reality as a life given by God, but as a life the Constitution creates by a judicial decision that says, can you survive outside the womb? So it's ironic that the abortion lawyers are trying to say to the court, do not abandon the rule of law when Casey and Roe themselves are a repudiation of the very foundation for the rule of law. There isn't any rule of law under Roe and Casey. And, and here's what we also will begin to appreciate. The court's holdings are not law in the first place. A court's holding does not create law, and therefore it can't create a rule of law. It can't create something equal to the Constitution as law. And we'll talk about that more in future weeks. Then, in a similar vein, uh, the Department of Justice has sued the state of Texas over the issue of abortion. And uh, Attorney General Garland said this September the 9th, the Department of Justice has a duty to defend the Constitution of the United States. We're going to talk about what the Constitution is and what defending the Constitution is over the next several weeks as we look at the question of what is law and what is the Constitution. But he goes on to say this, and to uphold the rule of law. Today we fulfill that duty by filing the lawsuit I've just described. So he's saying that fighting for the right of a woman to decide for herself what constitutes being a mother and motherhood and when she's going to become a mother, not based upon any objective given reality such as being pregnant, that there is no given public objective meaning to what a person is other than somebody that can live outside the womb, 
that they're saying is the rule of law. Again, what we have is the Attorney General of the United States thinking that somehow by trying to uphold abortion, he is upholding the rule of law when abortion denies the very foundation upon which the rule of law exists, God's created order, God's cosmological order, God's anthropological order. Without God, there is no rule of law. There's only the rule of men. So don't be taken in by thinking, yes, yes, you're right. I mean, when somebody says to you, they're just trying to uphold the rule of law, I hope after our discussion about the rule of law and today and what we're going to cover over the next few weeks, you'll call baloney on that argument. What the lawyer for the abortion clinic in Mississippi is saying is the rule of law is not the rule of law. What the Department of Justice thinks is the rule of law is not the rule of law. There is no rule of law unless there's an objective, created, given reality by which the civil laws, the positive laws, the laws created by men can be judged. If the only way to judge human law is by human law, there is no rule of law. There's only the rule of humans. There's only the rule of men. There's only the law of men. There can't be a rule of law. So anyway, I thought that would be interesting to bring back up. Now, the question that you might say is, well, David, why do I need to study uh, the law and the Constitution? That's what judges and lawyers are supposed to do. And as a citizen, I just, I just need to do my job, you know, go to work, raise my kids. I don't really need to understand the law and the Constitution. But I would like to challenge that notion in the time we have left today with what William Blackstone said in his commentaries. He says this, a science which he's talking here about the law, which distinguishes the criterions of right and wrong. Now think about that. That's what law does. Law distinguishes between what we will call right and what we will call wrong, what we will call just and what we will call unjust. That's what law does. And as a Christian, we should be concerned about right and wrong, injustice and injustice. As a matter of fundamental principle of loving the law of God, which is righteous and just and true altogether. So he says, a science which would distinguish those criteria of right and wrong, which teaches to establish the one and prevent and punish or redress the other. Think of 1 Peter 2 14, where he says that the magistrate is sent to commend the good and punish the evil. See the parallel though? The establish the one, prevent, punish, or redress the other. A science which employs in its theory the noblest faculties of the soul and exerts in its practice the cardinal virtues of the heart. Right and wrong, justice and injustice. A science which is universal in its use and extent, accommodated to each individual yet comprehending the whole community. What is he saying here? He's saying that there is law everywhere. You can't escape it. And it has to accommodate the individual and yet society as a whole. The question of unity and diversity, of individualism and statism. 
He then continues that a science like this should ever have been deemed unnecessary to be studied in a university is a matter of astonishment and concern. Surely, if it were not before an object of academical knowledge, it was high time to make it one. And to those who can doubt the propriety of its reception among us, if any there should be, we may return and answer in their own way that ethics are confessedly a branch of academical learning. You see, the law deals with ethics. And he points this out going all the way back to Aristotle with his next sentence. Aristotle himself has said, speaking of the laws of his own country, that jurisprudence, or the knowledge of those laws, is the principal and most perfect branch of ethics. See, because law is, is inherently bound up in right and wrong, justice and injustice. It is a branch of ethics. I had a legislator last year, a brand new one, who, who told me, well, on an abortion issue involving the rights of fathers and the killing of their children by the mothers and their wives, and I, he said, you know, I just, I just, I don't think I should impose my moral values on other people. And then he said, but, you know, then again, there's this other law, and I guess, you know, I'm, I'm imposing my moral values in that case on other people. And I know I probably sound like I'm not making much sense and talking out of both sides of my mouth. And I said something, to be honest, was yes. And then I said, I'm going to be a friend to you. I'm going to tell you that you need to go home. And you may not think that that's friendly advice, but that's all you do as a legislator is choose among moral values, ethical values, and put them into law and impose those on people who would disagree with those moral and ethical values. And if you can't do that, then you can't do this job. And it'll become a nightmare for you. You'll either become so jaded you don't care, or you'll be in constant turmoil. Now, of course, he hated me telling him that, but those were the faithful wounds of a friend. Because that's the very nature of law, is ethics, morality, justice, righteousness, injustice. And you don't need to be in a place where that is all you will do if you can't do that. That's the problem we have with a lot of our politicians. They can't make up their minds. They're, they stick their thumb up in the air to see which way the wind's blowing. And that's the only way they can live with themselves, is I'm doing whatever it looked like the poll results wanted without any regard to the rule of law, the true law that would underlie, gird, and support the civil laws made by legislators. Now Blackstone continues on. He said, it is well if the mass of mankind will obey the laws when made without scrutinizing too nicely into the reasons for making them. So what is he saying here? He said, you know, it's really nice sometimes if People say, well, that's the law. I, I guess we ought to obey it. See, that's what we've been doing in the Christian community for so long. Even among Christian lawyers. Well, the Supreme Court said this. I guess that's the law. And he said, so it's nice if people just obey the law. But he says, but when law is to be considered not only as a matter of practice, but as a rational science, it cannot be improper 
or useless to examine more deeply the rudiments and grounds of the positive constitutions of society. In other words, we really need to think about more than just practice. Here's how you arrange the chairs on the deck of that Titanic to go down last. You really need to think more deeply about the rudiments and the grounds of the law. And that's why I began with the rule of law and the importance of creation. Without creation, you don't have a rule of law. You just can't. So see what's happening here is it's nice if the mass of mankind will read what the Attorney General of the United States said about you got to affirm Casey because that's the rule of law and what the abortion doctor says, well, you know, you have to affirm Casey because that's the rule of law. It's nice if the mass of mankind will just hear that and go, oh yeah, the rule of law, the rule of law. Yeah, we need to affirm the rule of law. I can understand that. No. Think about what we've just said. Those people can't have a rule of law. They're using nonsense words. Their words are devoid of any content or meaning. Because what is the rule of law? It's what the Supreme Court said. Oh, well, wasn't that five people? Uh, well, yes. Well, then that's the rule of men, not the rule of law. They don't believe in a rule of law. And we let them make these statements and, and they go unchallenged. I don't, I don't want you to go through life letting statements like that go unchallenged, at least in your own head, at least in your own ability to say that's not the rule of law and I'm not going to get into an argument with the guy, but I'm not going to sweat it. It's not the rule of law. So he goes on and then says this. Experience may teach us to foretell that a lawyer, thus educated to the bar in subservience to attorneys and solicitors, will find he has begun at the wrong end. Now, what is he saying there? In other words, what he's saying is, you can learn how to practice law. Just like, you know, I'm, I might learn how to turn my computer on, but I don't know a thing about computers. And if something goes wrong, you know, I'm just in trouble. I have to take it to a shop or, you know, if the printer all of a sudden stops working, I don't know how to fix it. I just, it's cheaper to go buy a printer for a hundred bucks, you know? and install a new one because I don't know how to reinstall and all of that and it's just a mess. And he says, so, so you can teach a lawyer how to practice law, how to write a complaint, how to learn the rules of evidence, know when to object in court and how to draft a will or a trust. But, but he says, if that's where you begin, you've begun at the wrong end. And we have lots of law schools that that's exactly where they begin. You just need to know how to arrange the widgets in a document in a pleading, in a will, in a contract. And Blackstone says this, if practice be the whole he is taught. So if that's all you learn, practice must also be the whole he will ever know. If he be not instructed in the elements and first principles upon which the rule of practice is founded, the least variation from established precedents will totally distract him and bewilder him. He must never aspire to form and seldom expect to comprehend any arguments drawn from the spirit of the laws and the natural foundations of justice. Again, what is he saying? Well, if you don't understand the underlying precepts of the law, the philosophy of law, what grounds law, if all you know how to do is to, quote, practice it, 
then the slightest variation from what you've been taught will flummox you. You won't have any first principles from which to draw to figure out what to do next. So, for example, this is a, maybe a bad example, but it's a funny one. My wife's grandmother was going to make an angel's food cake, and they were going to make it together, and she realized she didn't have any shortening. So, she thought, well, let's see here. I've got baking grease here. You know, people used to keep baking grease on the back of the stove to use for lard, to, for grease, to help cook an egg in or something like that. So she thought grease is grease, right? Wrong. And she threw in the bacon grease. My wife said it was the worst tasting angel food cake she'd ever had. Because she didn't really understand the different kinds of greases and how they functioned and how they work. So she made a bacon tasting angel food cake. And, and that's what I see happening so much. We don't really understand what the law is. We don't understand the basic principles of the law. And so we're left to apply procedures badly. And if you've listened to this podcast for any period of time since the beginning, you've heard me refer to Alexis de Tocqueville's statement that if the principles that guide us, the guiding lights, ever go out, they'll, they'll gradually dim until we're left with wise procedures we no longer understand and making a clumsy and unintelligent use of wise procedures once forgotten. And that's exactly where we are in law. Because we no longer argue about the law, we argue about what we need to convince five people on the Supreme Court to vote in favor of. That's really nothing more than sophistry. Rhetoricians, tell me what the person wants to hear and how many of them will want to hear it? And can I find enough people that want to hear it? And that's what I'll tell them. It doesn't matter if it's law. It doesn't matter if it's connected to anything before anything. We make it up as we go along. Tell me what you want to hear. This is like in Scripture, the people who have itching ears. And the pastors who preach to them, this is the equivalent in my profession. What do the judges want to hear? And that's what I'll tell them. There is no law. The fact that you're, you're asking what the judge wants to hear rather than telling the judge what he needs to know or arguing about the law is, an, is evidence that we don't have the rule of law. It's evidence that we don't even really have a constitution. Because as you could see from what was said by the attorneys in the Dobbs case, they weren't arguing about whether the court previously construed the words of the Constitution correctly according to the law upon which the Constitution was based. They were actually just simply saying, continue as you've always done. Whether you were right or whether you were wrong, the Constitution doesn't really matter. Only look at what you've said about the Constitution in the past. Whether it's wrong or right or whether it's consistent with the Constitution doesn't matter anymore. We don't have a written Constitution. We have whatever five justices on the Supreme Court says we have and we act like that's the law. The rule of law requires us to follow that and that's the Constitution. That is all wrong.
And over the next several weeks, we're going to explain it. And I hope you'll join me next time for God, Law, and Liberty. If you enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to the podcast. And if you want to help spread the word, please give us a five-star review and tell your friends to subscribe too. God, Law, and Liberty is available on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information, please visit us at www.facttennessee.org. That's F-A-C-Tennessee.org. And please follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Fact Tennessee.